such a joy seeing our new members this morning and getting to celebrate with them and getting to be all together as a church worshiping today. Last weekend, I took a short trip up to Northern California where my family's from. It was my youngest brother's 40th birthday. I have two younger brothers. So yeah, my, my little brother is 40. And um, he had planned a big birthday party at a park with a barbecue and a potluck. He had friends there from all the different seasons of his life. One of his high school teachers was there and different former co-workers and classmates and then extended family as well. And it was a really special time, and I had felt like it was important for me to be there for it. Some of you know my family has gone through some hard things. Um, My dad passed away back in 2000 from cancer, and this Thanksgiving it'll be two years since my mom passed away. And so my brothers and I have been through a lot. And to be able to be together and celebrate life and family and celebrate that we're healthy and that we're unified, and to celebrate our love for one another uh, was a really important thing to me, and I was so glad to be able to be there. You know, we're in Luke chapter 17, and Jesus is still on the way towards his death. I was reflecting that, like, for my past four sermons, every time I get up and say, and I say to you, Jesus is on the way to his death, And I realized there's something so significant to that uh, for me. And I was asking God, why why am I finding that to be so significant that Jesus is on the way to his death? And as I was thinking about my brother's birthday, uh, reaching this milestone of 40, and just celebrating that we're alive and we're well, I realized that, you know, we're all on the way towards our death. And as we look at what Jesus has to say, how Jesus is telling us to live as he is on the way to his death, we also have this opportunity to live knowing that we are on the way to our death as well. And, you know, Jesus would go on and suffer and be crucified and die and then be resurrected and ascend back to the Father. And we too are made for eternity. And as Jesus teaches us how we should live on the way towards our death, really he's preparing us for eternity. And I think we will see that in today's passage, that Jesus is preparing you and me for eternity, for how we should live now in the light of eternity. We'll be in Luke chapter 17 today, and let's pray together as we enter into the scripture. God, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you teach us how to live as people who are made for eternity. And I pray for us as we look today at at this portion of scripture that can be a really challenging portion. God, thank you that your words are to bring us life. And so I pray for us, God, would you speak to us and speak into our lives as we study your word this morning. And we thank you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Luke chapter 17, we'll pick up Jesus' words in verse 21. The scripture says that once 
on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. That word observed is like how a doctor observes a patient, looking for symptoms to try to see what condition the patient is in. Jesus says the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The Pharisees are asking this question. Think about who the Pharisees are and what they have been doing as we've been going through Luke, looking at the ministry of Jesus. It's the Pharisees who have been constantly trying to trap Jesus in his words. They've been plotting to kill him. They have been opposing him every step of the way. And the Pharisees are asking this question, and I have to think that this is not a sincere question, that they don't sincerely care how Jesus will answer this question. At the same time, though, the Pharisees were waiting for the kingdom. The Pharisees studied scripture so that they could learn about the coming Messiah. And the Pharisees truly were trying to live in a way that reflected the coming Messiah. And tragically, the Pharisees miss the coming Messiah who is right there in front of them in in Jesus. So the Pharisees, though they are insincere here, they were waiting for the kingdom. The Old Testament paints a picture of a Messiah who would come and bring his kingdom and bring freedom from oppression. And the Pharisees were waiting for that. But again, tragically, the Pharisees don't see that the king, Jesus, is right in front of them. They're asking the king when the kingdom will come, and they don't recognize that the king is right in front of them. Jesus was not what they expected in a king. The kind of kingdom he spoke about was not the kind of kingdom that they were looking for. And I wonder how we feel about having a king, how we feel about being part of a kingdom. I think about all the conflicts between political leaders all around the world today. How do we feel about the imagery of having a king? I'm part of a missions organization called Novo. And each month at the start of the month, we have something we call First Fruits Monday. We take time on Sunday evening or Monday morning to set aside time for prayer and worship, to give of the first fruits of our time in worship of God each month. And this past month, at the beginning of October, our First Fruits focus was on Jesus as King. And there was a scripture that we were invited to reflect upon. And it's a scripture from Psalm 24, and I think the words will be up on the screen. It's, it, this is a psalm of King David from the Old Testament, saying, Lift up your heads, you gates. It's an image of city gates opening wide for a coming king. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. It asks, Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. And in this psalm, it repeats those words of, Lift up your heads, you gates, that the king of glory may come in. 
And at the beginning of October, during this first fruits time, I was in a prayer time with a couple of friends where we were reflecting on what it means for the king to come into our lives. We know that God is in our life, but what does it really mean for the king of glory to come into our lives in all of the fullness of that? And in this prayer time, early in October, the prayer leader invited me and the others to first reflect on what it means, what the king of glory even means to me, and then to reflect on what it would mean for the king of glory to come more fully into our families. And then what would it mean for the king of glory to come into our workplaces, to come into our ministry? And I want to share just a little bit of what happened in me as I prayed. When I first thought about my image of a king, honestly what came to mind was this huge statue, a cold, impersonal statue that was so huge that I was standing before it and I was about as tall as the foot of the statue. And it was impersonal. It was just a statue. And I was alarmed in prayer, thinking, like, God, is this, is this how I think of a king? Is, is this my picture in my mind of what a king is? And I wonder what your picture is when you hear the biblical language of the king of glory. I wonder what, what comes to your mind. And as I continued praying, the leader invited us to pray about what it would look like for the king of glory to come more fully into our families. And in this part of it, in my prayer, I imagined the king of glory coming among my brothers, their wives, their families, myself. And I realized that in some ways, I feel like we have a nice, even balance in our family. We found, you know, we found a way for things to go smoothly. And I realized that if the king of glory came really fully into my family, it would turn things upside down. And that would be good and also hard. And I found encouragement feeling that if the king of glory were to come fully in, it would turn our lives upside down in the best of ways. And then in the third part of this prayer time, we were asking God what it would mean for the king of glory to come fully into our workplaces and our ministry. And for me, in this part of the prayer time, I saw something that really um, touched my heart. I, in prayer, I saw King Jesus coming among us in ministry. And he's king, and he came, and he knelt down and started washing people's feet, just like in Scripture. And in my heart and mind in this time of prayer, I saw King Jesus among, among us doing ministry together, and we all were kneeling down and washing people's feet. And, that, and I thought back to the start of my prayer time with an impersonal statue of a king where I was this tiny person down at his foot. And in this time of prayer, I ended up kneeling along with Jesus along with the king, washing people's feet. I want to invite us to reflect on what it means that there is a kingdom, that we are part of a kingdom, that we have a king, that that king is Jesus. I want us to reflect on what that king is like and what it means for us to follow that king.
I think that King Jesus is not what we expect, but he is what we desperately need. And so Jesus continues on in this portion of scripture. The Pharisees have asked when the kingdom of God would come. They have asked the king without realizing who he really is. And Jesus replies, and let's pick up his words in verse 22. He has replied to the Pharisees, and now he turns to his disciples. And Jesus says, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is speaking of himself. He's using the Son of Man imagery to speak of himself. This Son of Man language is rich language from the Old Testament. In particular, if you look at Daniel 7, it uses this language of Son of Man, and it refers to this glorious one who will come and will be given all authority and will rule. Jesus is speaking of himself. And he's speaking of his upcoming suffering and death, which he says is necessary. He is speaking to people who might have been looking around for when the Messiah would come, or who after Jesus' death and resurrection will then be looking around for when the Messiah will come again. And Jesus is telling the people, when people say to you, look for him there, or look for him there, don't listen to them. Jesus is saying that when he does return, you'll know it. That when he does return, it will be like lightning across the sky. I've shared with you about my epic sibling hike that I did a few, about a month ago. And after our epic sibling hike, my brothers and I camped. And we knew that there might be a storm coming, but we, we went ahead and camped. I was in my tent. Uh, my middle brother was in his tent. My youngest brother was sleeping outside. And we knew that, that the rain and the thunder and lightning might come. And around 11 p.m. that night, it did come. And when it came, we didn't have to go looking for it. It was clear that it had come and we saw the lightning across the sky. And so Jesus is using this lightning imagery to say, don't be misled by people would say, who would say, look, the Messiah's there, or look, the Messiah's there. Jesus is pointing ahead to his second coming and saying that when he comes again, there won't be any doubt. We will know it. It will be like lightning across the sky. And it strikes me that so oftentimes we human beings look for Jesus where he isn't and then we ignore him where he is. And I think we'll see that Jesus highlights this as he continues with his words here. And so let's pick up his words again in verse 26. In these next verses, he begins to speak of the judgment that is a part of his coming again. 
Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And Jesus gives a second story. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. As you know, these are two famous, tragic Old Testament stories. The story of Noah. You know, God created humanity and declared it very good. And as you know, Adam and Eve and humanity through them fell into sin. And a time came when the Lord sees great wickedness that has spread all through the human race. And the scripture in Genesis 6 says that God sees that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. Think of the tragedy of that. People created by God whose every inclination has now become evil. And the scripture says that the Lord regrets that he has made human beings. These are tragic words. And the scripture says that the heart of God is deeply troubled. And the scripture continues on and says that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And as you know, God instructs Noah to build an ark and to bring his family onto that ark and to bring um, various animals onto that ark. And then the rain comes down and Noah and his family and the animals are saved. And it's a picture of judgment and rescue. The story of Lot is in Genesis 18 and 19. Lot is Abraham's nephew, and Lot has ended up in Sodom near Gomorrah. And similarly, the sinfulness of the people of Sodom, the scripture says the sinfulness have, has like reached the ears of God, that the outcry has become so great and the sin has become so grievous. And there's this amazing incident where Abraham pleads for the people of Sodom and God agrees eventually that if even 10 faithful people could be found in Sodom then God will spare the city and tragically 10 faithful people cannot be found and God rescues Lot and his family who are willing to come with him and then God rains down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, it's a picture of judgment and also rescue. And Jesus uses these two stories to make his point here. I think he's telling us that sometimes we feel like life will just continue on and never change. We feel like there's sin around us. We have sin in our own lives. And we feel like life will just continue and things will just keep on going on the way they have been. And Jesus is telling us that a time will come when he will come again. And it will be both a time of judgment and a time of rescue. As I was preparing this message, there was a, a video clip that came to mind. In a moment, we'll be showing a short clip from 
the movie Titanic. Maybe some of you remember that movie from a bunch of years ago now. And the clip we're going to see is difficult to watch. It's a pretty horrible thing that we'll be seeing. It comes at a point in the movie when the ship, um, it has become clear that the ship is going to sink. But you will see a group of people who are unwilling to recognize that. They are acting like life will just go on the way it always has. And I need to just prepare you that this clip has some PG-13 language in it. But I think it's worth seeing this clip because it highlights what it can be like when we refuse to recognize what is taking place and we insist upon pretending that nothing will ever change. So if we have the video clip ready, let's go ahead and play it. Hey, Sonny, what's doing? You got us all trussed up here, and now we're cooling our heels. Sorry, Mom. Let me go and find out. I don't think anybody knows what the hell's going on around here. Goddamn English doing everything by the book. There's no need for language, Mr. Hockley. Go back and turn the heaters on in our rooms. I'd like a cup of tea when I return. Yes, ma'am. I saw the iceberg, and I see it in your eyes. Please tell me the truth. This way, please. This way. The ship will sink. Are certain? Yes. In an hour or so. All this will be at the bottom of the Atlantic. What? Please, tell only who you must. I don't want to be responsible for a panic. And get to a boat, quickly. Don't wait. You remember what I told you about the boat? Yes. I understand. Yes, madam, please put it on immediately. The people were wearing life vests. And meanwhile, the band, the orchestra was playing, the drinks were being offered, the people were preparing their rooms to be heated for that night. They were ignoring the reality of what was taking place. And I think that sometimes we human beings are like that, that we ignore the reality and act as if and live as if things will just always continue the way they always have been. At the same time, there are some big contrasts between the Titanic and our situation with God, thankfully. Because the iceberg is impersonal. The iceberg doesn't have a heart. The iceberg doesn't care. The iceberg isn't compassionate or merciful. The iceberg... (laughs) doesn't care if we live or die. But our God, who is teaching us how to live for eternity, our God is merciful. He is compassionate. 
He has provided for our rescue. He has provided for our salvation through Jesus. And so we don't need to live like those people on the Titanic, acting like there is no God, acting like life will just continue the way it always has. We have a merciful, caring God that we can follow who has extended everything that's needed for our salvation by giving Jesus for us. As I've been studying this passage, it is hard looking at judgment. I like, I like focusing on Jesus who heals the sick, who welcomes the outcast, who forgives the sinners. It is hard to focus on the reality that this same Jesus also comes as king and that there is judgment as well as rescue. While I was up visiting my brothers, my middle brother is part of a small group, and I had the opportunity to attend it. And the night I was there, the small group was called to to lament. The whole focus of the evening was prayer of lament. And the leader distributed to us a sheet of paper with like 15 different news headlines on it. So things like um, child trafficking that's taking place, the exposure of women who have been abused, um, international conflict and war where people are dying, the problems of poverty where people are suffering. And as we all read through that list, it was overwhelming, and we, we lamented, we cried out to God. And it helped me realize why there is judgment as well as rescue. Because our sinfulness as humanity as a whole, our individual sinfulness, is great. It is large. It is serious. And so judgment is what we deserve. But the beauty of the gospel is that rescue is what God offers us in Jesus. And so in our passage of scripture... Jesus brings it back from these Old Testament stories back to his hearers, his disciples, and back to us. And let's pick up his words for the final piece of this in verse 30. Jesus says, It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. He's talking about the day of his second coming. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, he says. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, Jesus says, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And the disciples ask, where, Lord? And Jesus replies with this cryptic, hard-to-understand saying, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Scholars have many theories for what Jesus' closing words there mean. Among those theories, I think that the one that that I feel captures the truth that Jesus is trying to say is that where there are those who are spiritually dead, there there will be judgment. 
There is rescue available, but where there are those who won't receive the rescue, there will be judgment. I think of the materialism of our world, the individualism that it's so easy to fall into, the skepticism we can have. And I believe Jesus is asking us to live in such a way to be ready for his coming. Jesus is merciful. He's compassionate. He loves us. He has made a way for us through his own death and resurrection. And Jesus is telling us to live in such a way as to be ready. The king is coming, and Jesus is inviting us to be ready. And if there's only a few words that you would take from this message, I would invite you to take the words that the king is coming and to let that impact your life, that the king is coming. He is merciful. He is gentle. He is powerful. He is saving us. The king is coming. And let's take from this scripture that invitation and call to recognize that the king is coming and to live in such a way that reflects that the king is coming. I want to close with one more story of a prayer time. Most weeks on Thursdays, I meet with a friend named Susan at Cal Poly Pomona where I teach mathematics, and my office opens to the outside. So when I open my office door, I'm able to look straight out onto the quad, our large grassy area where students walk by on the way to class. And as Susan and I pray, I am always struck by God's love for the people of the campus. Many of the students don't know Jesus. They don't know that there is a king who is merciful and compassionate and who offers to rescue them. And so Susan and I pray that the students would know God's love for them and that the students would come to know Jesus and follow him, that the students would know that there is a king and that he is coming again. Let's look at our weekly challenge. So I want to invite us this week that we would come to know God more by rereading Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. And I want to invite you to put this scripture into your own words. It can help us to really see what the scripture is saying to us, to actually reflect it back in our own words. So I want to invite us to do that to grow in our faith. I want to invite us to read Psalm 24 about the king of glory coming in. And in prayer, think about what it means for you, for your family, for your workplace, for King Jesus to more fully come in. And let that reality impact these different places in your life. And then for overflow, I want to give us a challenge. So I want to invite us and I will do this too, to ask God for an opportunity to tell someone about King Jesus this week. So when you pray and you ask God for this opportunity, and then God brings the opportunity, then let's be bold and go ahead and take the opportunity and and tell someone about King Jesus, and let's see what God does with that. Let's pray as we close this message time today.
King Jesus, we thank you that you are a mighty king, and yet you are compassionate and merciful, that you are all-powerful, and yet you also know us personally, and you come to rescue us. God, we thank you that, that though our sin is great and there is judgment, that God, you have taken that penalty upon yourself in Jesus, and you have made the way for our forgiveness and our rescue. And God, I pray for us, help us to live in the light of eternity. Help us to live knowing that you are with us already and that the king is coming again in all of the fullness of that. God, I pray for each of us this week that you would help us to see what that means for our lives, that the king is coming, what that means for how you would have us live today. Thank you, God. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Jenny, shall we all stand as we conclude our time of one more?